Hello everyone, it's Matthew Seaman here, podcast editor at Raw News, and welcome back to Rawcast, the companion podcast to King's College London's multi-award winning student newspaper, Raw News. Today, our news editor, Samuel Teal Chadwick, will be talking about the great music restart. He's going to be chatting with John Warner, founder of Orchestra for the Earth, and Erlen Vespi, a cellist in the Southbank Symphonia. So without further ado, for the final scheduled episode of Rawcast, it's over to Sam. Hi, and welcome to this mini-album of musical and music-related conversations, looking back and looking forward. At this moment of cultural renewal, I hope it will serve to chronicle just some insights on why the arts are important. We start with John Warner with the story of the Orchestra for the Earth's Foundation. It was, uh, I guess, uh, an experience uh, as well as as a thought. It it came about uh, in sort of... 2017, 2018, when I was in the, my last year of studying, and I put together an orchestra um, of, you know, just kind of friends and, and fellow musicians um, just to play music while we were while we were still studying, um, and I started learning about these composing huts that the composer Mahler built for himself or had built, uh, and so he had an incredibly busy schedule when he at the sort of peak of his career when he was the um, music director at the Vienna, what was then the court opera in Vienna. Um, and he took 10 weeks off every summer from this hectic urban lifestyle to go and write music. And he found these amazing, beautiful, remote locations where he could find kind of peace with himself and the world and the headspace to to, to put down the thoughts that no doubt were kind of germinating in his mind um, throughout the rest of the year. And, and I became fascinated with them and I and I um, became rather fixated on the idea of taking a small orchestra to perform concerts at them. Some of them do host little concert series every now and again, some of them don't. Um, and um, they certainly don't get international orchestras passing through very often. Um, orchestras are mainly urban creatures uh, and tend to stick to what, what I might call the kind of airport circuit of touring. Um, so we, yeah, I, I, I got in touch with these with these small towns in, in the Alps and said, uh, you know, how about it? We've got a plan. We've got this chamber arrangement of Marla 9, um, which we'd love to come and play. And, and somehow it all kind of fitted together. And we, we built a kind of 10 day tour um, out of these locations. And it was quite amazing. So you can see how it, it all kind of started to make sense. Um, I was about to kind of go out into the big wide world and try and make a sort of career for myself and try and I wanted to do something of some importance. Uh, I think I wasn't that keen on just kind of conducting concerts and that being the end of it. So I decided to, to make the orchestra into, into what it is now, which is the Orchestra for the Earth. Um, I couldn't think of a better name. So that one kind of stuck. Um, and from there, we've sort of built on that idea of music as a as a as a catalyst for cultural change on the environment, um, as well as just as a as a way of just like I say, drawing attention to this very important connection between nature and music, um, that I think has a, a great relevance uh, to people's lives. Um, so we've kind of gone from there. Well, absolutely, and thank you uh, for this wonderful. Um... Uh, an insightful answer. Um, when um, last year um, you were to quote the um, motto of um, the isolate self-isolation choir, um, apart but together, um, how 
did you decide on um, Mahler's Resurrection Symphony? Well, I, I, I can't take credit for the idea. The idea was a man called Mark Strawn who founded Self-Isolation Choir and who I knew from before uh, the pandemic happened. Um, and, and Mark got back in touch with me and said, I've, I've started this choir. Um, do you want to do Mahler too mm. without anybody ever being in the same room? And, and I sort of said, you're completely insane. Uh, why not? Um, <laughs> we had uh, only about 25 musicians, but multi-tracking mm. all, you know, sort of basically around about 100 separate orchestral parts. Mm. Um, you know, one trumpet player recorded all 10 trumpet parts, for example, mm. et cetera, et cetera. Um, so a monumental challenge for them. Mm. Um, for me, it was great uh, having to set down. So that as you as you say, the way it works is that I played a sort of master track on the piano uh, of this piece, um, basically um, because I, I have I'm slightly allergic to this idea of using a click track because I don't think music really works in a kind of click track way. Right. You know, music should have a sort of beating heart rather than a regimental pulse, especially um, in Mahler. Yeah, exactly. Especially with Mahler, who is, like you've said, very, very specific in, in terms of the kind of the written in rubato of the music and the ebb and flow of it. So I wanted to, to make sure that the, the master track, the kind of base of what all, everyone recorded along to, did have that sense of flow and sounded like real music as much as I could simulate on the piano. Um, and it was a great experience to, to have to really think very, very deeply um, about how I wanted this to go. And, and, you know, I had to think, well, I better, I hope I won't regret this ritardando when I hear 600 singers singing it back to me uh, and I can't do anything about it. Um, mostly I, I'd say I was, I was fairly happy with how, how, it, how it came out in the end. It's quite hard to, when you're playing the piano, imagine the kind of space that a full orchestra and a full choir needs in terms of tempo. Um, but it worked remarkably well. I think it was a great choice of piece in hindsight. Um, it, you know, obviously it's a piece that I don't think has been performed since, you know, uh, well over a year ago and, and is unlikely to be so for, for some time um, from here on. Um, so there was this amazingly special feeling of, wow, we're actually doing Mahler too. These pieces feel like they've been consigned to the history books at the moment. Uh, and it is just such a special piece. It, is, it has a phenomenal sense of, of event. Uh, I mean, I think all Mahler's pieces do it in some sense. You know, they're, they're more than just performances. They are kind of um, uh, events in that sense. Um, but, but in the end, I think it was a, it was a great thing. And, and um, yeah, I hope that we that we made a, a, some difference to some people's lives at a, what it was a very dark and difficult time. Also, the um, Mahler's um, "I'm Lost to the World," but I think that was at the end of a, a really um, lovely documentary um, profiling Dame Janet Baker. Um, and um, how I think how do you sort of decide on on these pieces? Um, I suppose. Well, yeah, there is a. The Mahler thing seems to keep coming round. I mean, like I say, our, our kind of foundation was in some ways based on it. And our, our founding patron is Marina Mahler, who's, who's Mahler's own granddaughter. Yes, yes. Um, uh, so we have a very strong, very real personal human connection in, in, in that sense. Um, I think Mahler, you know, I, I love many, many, many composers, but he, he does have a way of... of of continuing to hit the tone of the moment. And I think in the 21st century, he, 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 it's only more and more uh, powerful in that respect. And, you know, 
when we'd all been told to sit in our homes and not see our loved ones for God knows how, how long it was going to be, a song that said, I'm lost to the world somehow just, you know, hit right between the eyes. Um, mm. We were, we were going to be performing that um, in, in, a, in, a, in a broader program uh, in Amsterdam in the Concertgebouw Festival uh, in May, which was of course cancelled. Mm. Um, so that was, that was why we did it. Uh, and I must say it was for me, it was, that was the first of these, no, not quite. It was the second of these co-videos that we did, but the first one was quite small scale. Um, but this one, just seeing, you know, as the musicians sent in their tracks, it was very, very moving just to think they are still there. You know, they're out there and, and they've sat down at home and played their hearts out for this beautiful mm. little piece. Mm. Um, yeah, the, I, in a way, it's, we'll never recapture that feeling, I think, of the first lockdown when we really were incredibly confined and, and mm. it was very unknown. Um, mm. We've become a little, I guess, desensitized to it. It's it remains it remains difficult. It's been it, yeah, you're right. A, a way we could still connect as musicians, um, a, a, and that's great. Um, but th there's no hiding the fact that the the toll that this is taking on on the industry, which is a not something that can just be parked. You know, it's like a football team. You know, if a football team stops practicing together, and um, then they will lose their collective skill. Uh, and you know, culture is a living, breathing thing, and we and we are losing it. I think at the moment mm. in a, in a fairly terrifying way. Mm. Um, there's that quote misattributed to Churchill, uh, which is when when asked why, and I, it's, it's a false quote, but it makes a point. When asked why they weren't cutting arts funding during the war, he said, "Well, what would we be fighting for?" Mm -hmm. I think there is there's some truth in that, right? That but we need to make sure that there is something to live for when when we return to normality. Uh, and keeping the flame alive in, in terms of culture, I think, is uh, is a pretty critical part of that. And the orchestra will continue to forge its tours away from the airport circuit. Because if you live in, for example, Berlin, you have, you know, three or four world-class orchestras on your doorstep anyway who live there all the time. So it's great when the LSO comes through and plays a concert new, or when the Orchestra de Paris comes through. But you're not exactly starved of high-quality orchestral mm. performances. Um, whereas if you, if you live in, certainly in this country, if you live somewhere that's not an urban centre, you know, you really are starved of it and the orchestras don't even come passing through on tours. So I think that touring orchestras have some moral obligation actually to resolve that rather than exacerbating the kind of wealth, culture, um, focalisation on urban centres, they could actually start to kind of dissipate it a little bit and, and bring music to places that don't often hear it, which which is what it should all be about, right? Mm. Um, so I think that's one, uh, I suppose what I'm trying to say is in cutting the carbon emissions, you can also bring, bring artistic and sort of community benefits to what you're doing. The and the reason it was carbon emissions is that if you had to say fly to Beijing, well, don't fly to Bangkok the next day, stay in China and travel around on their phenomenal railway network, mm -hmm. um, which most of which is electric, um, and visit places in, in the surrounding areas, or indeed in China, you can travel across the entire country by rail at, at breathtaking speed, um, and, and you know, really engage with a much, much wider um, sort of uh, demographic uh, and geographical area um, instead of just instead of just hopping between capital cities. So there's, I think, a huge benefit to be had uh, by having that kind of approach. And on top of that, make sure you engage with the communities in a in a real sense, you know, um, there we we do community projects when we when we tour, um, so we feel that it's somehow worth it because I don't think you can really justify 
flying in order just to play a concert. I, I, I you know, I, I think the value of music is tremendous, um, but certainly when you're flying to somewhere that has its own orchestra, it's a, it's an obscene luxury of the 21st century that you can be in Tokyo and hear the Vienna Philharmonic. You know, that's mm. it's outrageous, and mm. it, and and it and it is at the cost of the you know the planet that we all live on. Sure. So, well, that 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 environmental impact is, um, uh, you know, in uh, uh, as you say, sort of eye watering. I suppose it is a, a drop in the ocean compared to the much wider picture of um, carbon emissions on on a sort of systemic level, and really investing in in those green solutions and um in the good energy video which which people can find on youtube you know that there was a scientist um really welcoming the the artistic impact and the, the artistic element of of that when you played on the, the wind farm on earth overshoot day when earth uh, uses up all the resources which it can afford to produce in that year i think what it's part of is uh is making sure that the conversation about climate change and positive change on 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 consumption is everywhere including in the arts there are many many ways that the arts organizations can reduce their impact you know thinking about how they run their buildings thinking about encouraging audiences to take public transport to their venues and that kind of thing that's all really important and critical mm -hmm. but but i would say it's the baseline above that i i would really like to see uh, and i'm not kind of um uh, destroy my own brand here. I'd really love to see more organisations do events that use music itself as the the melting pot for these discussions and inspiring people and and shifting the narrative on this so that we can build consensus to to do the right thing. That would be great. And as musicians, therefore, that is our role: is to do both both to do our bit in terms of reducing our emissions, but also to do our bit in communicating the importance of it and engaging people with it in a, in a powerful way. And I think that is the biggest contribution that we can uh, give is inspiring people and engaging them in a way that, for example, newspaper articles really don't, right? It's, it's very easy to listen to a radio program or see a bit of news or even watch a documentary and, and feel completely helpless. And you think, oh my God, the, 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 the problem is too big and cannot be solved by, yeah. you know, me alone. So I can't really do anything. So I'm just going to sit here and do nothing. Yeah. Whereas if you yeah. go to a really inspiring concert, you might think, wow, you know, I can do something about this. This is really important. Mm. Well, um, absolutely. Um, and what projects uh, does the Orchestra for the Earth have lined up? Um, what's what's next? Um, I'll give you a couple. Um, our first live gig um, for a long time is on the 19th of June. Uh, it's in Waterloo in London. Uh, and we're working with a, a wonderful author, a travel writer called Horatio Clare, uh, who wrote this lovely book about um, when Bach was a young man, he, he left his job as an organist and said, I'm going to be gone for a couple of weeks, but I'll be back soon. And was gone for six months because he walked by foot 250 miles to go and hear Buxtehude play the organ, who is mm -hmm. his kind of conventional idol. Yeah. Um, and this author, Horatio, has written, like I say, a book where he retraced Bach's steps. He did the walk he, he, as, as accurately as possible, which is quite accurately. He, he found the routes that he must have gone and walked through the landscapes he must have walked through and kind of reimagined what it must have been like for the young Bach by then, you know, at that point, totally unknown as a composer, mm. um, as he might have wandering through kind of ha having musical ideas germinating through his through his mind. In, in the 18th century, when Bach was, was alive, 
you couldn't really get away from nature, especially if you lived in what was a relatively small town like like Leipzig or indeed Arnstadt, where he was living at that point. You know, you, you couldn't escape to, to an urban centre in the way you can these days. So nature would have been all around him and surely would have influenced his music. We've got a concert at Milton Keynes International Festival. Um, we, we like to get out of the concert hall if we possibly can. And this is a great example of that because we're playing in um, this huge park in Milton Keynes called Campbell Park. And we've teamed up with this wonderful charity called Trees of Music who have identified a major, major issue, um, which is that the, the tree, the wood of which is used to make violin, cello, viola bows, uh, is called a Pernambuco tree. It grows in the rainforest in Brazil, mm. and and if you grow in the rainforest in Brazil these days, it's um, your days are numbered. And this tree, of course, you know the issue is vast, but this tree is a great symbol because it's saying, look, this rainforest is not just important because it's beautiful. Although I say that's the reason in itself, mm. it's not just important because it's the lungs of the planet. It's also important because it's literally the the special wood that makes our string instruments sound the way we do. Is, is facing extinction. So we need to save it, we need to protect it. So we're doing a concert with a with a Elgar cello concerto as the kind of centerpiece yeah. uh, in a sound dome in this great big park to say, look, this is why these trees are important. You know, if yeah. you, this is a reason to care yeah. about this. Um, and they've set up uh, a great project, basically sort of funding and supporting local local people and local farmers and conservationists in Brazil to, to protect this tree and start sort of reforesting some of the areas that have been destroyed. So that's that's what we're up to in the next two months. It's hopefully we're going to hit the ground running. Great. It it does speak to the to the moment we're in. I I think that really does provide some some optimism and inspiration. Um. Uh, so yeah, thank you very much. Well, it's great to, great to talk to you. You too. <laughs> and I am a cellist originally from Norway but I've been living in the UK for the past four years um, first as a postgraduate student at the RCM um, yeah. and then later as cellist in Southbank Symphonia one of the last um, concerts um, which I heard give was um, in the uh, church in Waterloo the Southbank Symphonia um, yeah. including um, uh, Beethoven Pastoral Symphony Number no. Six, uh, which is yes. phenomenal. Uh, right. I can't. That was actually it. our first concert. <laughs> right. Oh, really? Yeah. Was it? it didn't last very long um, before I had to stop. But uh, yeah. Yeah, and then um, shortly after um, your historically informed um, Elgar Cello Concerto um, at yeah. the Royal College, um, which is gorgeous, um, and then oh, well, short, shortly after that stopped. Um, uh, but one of the first things you did was, um, I really love this way of bringing people together and um, having a photo from across the world for many musicians you knew, about, about 60, asking for a photo, and then accompanying that slideshow with the yeah. Bach first cello suite, which you'd recorded before. Um, yeah. How did you come up with that idea? And, and um, with the response you got, um, I suppose it just sort of brought people together, in a way. Yeah, it did. Um, no, yeah. So this was very early on after after um, I had moved back back onto Norway then because nothing was happening here at the moment. Um, 
And I kind of felt a little alone. Uh, very, very early on. Uh, and, and so I thought, um, kind of have to do something, <laughs> I felt. <laughs> and I've always been interested in combining photos and music. It's mm. been kind of a, a natural thing to me. Mm. Um, That's interesting. I really and especially that. nature and music, mm. I found, is very, very closely connected. Um, so I just started asking some people, really, and then I got this massive response, uh, as you were saying, and then I was just like, yeah, why not? I just go through my friend list on Facebook and ask everyone I know <laughs> um, right. that represent every every different country. Yeah, as many countries as I have, and I actually yeah. got some from all of them, mm. which I was like, wow. Yeah, and um, so people were reconnecting amazing. with nature and, and music. How how is mu music and nature connected to you? I, I'm. It's both ways, really. So when I hear music, I can see nature. Um, so, for instance, this coming coming Friday, we're gonna play a serenade by Vaughan Williams. Um, I never heard it before, uh, but the first time I heard it, I instantly thought of different um, places in the in the UK countryside. To say, mm. um, I could hear a Peak District. I could hear um, waters or, or early morning lakes at the Lake District. I could see the beaches of the Northern Wales, um, the mountains in Scotland. Mm. Um, so it really comes came strong to me. Um, and I think he's perhaps that composer. I, I think he's managed to capture the um, the colors. I think of the English countryside the best. Um, but also the opposite. When I'm out walking in nature, I can hear music. So I always hear music in my head. Uh, I'm not always know what what it is, but it's and it's always symphonic symphonic music. Yeah. So and and after so you returned to Norway last year over the summer. Yeah, in and March. It was, and um, it was from there that you sent your musical postcard playing bass yes, exactly. on the, be on the yeah. beach. Yeah, um, Bach which on is, the beach. <laughs> which is beautiful. And do you think that that would be um, something which um, is of its moment? And okay, that's kind of a piece of musical social history, if you like. Or is that something which maybe can be... Uh, continued in the future. Um, well, yeah, I, th I think the latter, absolutely. Um, so I also did this in in the, uh, December. I had uh, uh, musical Advent videos for each week. Um, so lots of different sceneries, both from here in the UK and and also Norway, which also got a lot of response. Um, and I think that we are not the only one like seeing. Um, whether it's nature or, or anything else connected with music. So I just think that uh, the images and are making the music stronger and also the opposite. Mm. So combined, it, it gives a much stronger um, experience in a way. Mm. So I, I'm looking at, uh, you know, continuing uh, yeah. doing all these yeah. things. Yeah. Um, you can argue that uh, some people would is not seeing exactly what you are presenting. Uh, and that's what's beautiful about music, because it brings up your associations. Um, so it's, it's kind of both way. You can't always put pictures to music, obviously. Mm. But um, yeah. it gives something different. Yeah. 
and mm. indeed when you return to that beach or that piece of music that will always be there and it's like a, a yeah, lifelong journey in a way yeah that's true and very also connected it, yeah it builds a sense of community as well um with the south bank symphonia that you i love the idea okay you're all scattered around the world you all have these contributions from your repertoire from um the landscapes of your your areas where you're from which was really lovely mm. yeah it's a wonderful um wonderful orchestra and and, and the staff are, are so creative and so so caring um and really want to engage us in in everything um they do so it's a wonderful place to be and and to do a lot for the community um not at least with these free concerts every week and um south bank symphonia is what's kept you busy recently because um uh, in the past week you've been doing that you've had your first live concert um how was that and um what are you looking forward to next yeah last week first live concert that was that was very special uh, for all of us uh, playing but not maybe at least for those listening to it um i was talking to some of the audiences who was really really keen on getting back on hearing live music um with such a long time without um and i felt the orchestra had so much more energy uh, for that performance than we have had before because we've been playing together since um lately since uh, after easter but only streamed concerts and and actually playing for people is is something very very different mm. so we have been enjoying that a lot um Right now, I'm just uh, looking forward to the next one, which is on Friday already. So <laughs> keeps us busy. The the past year, what opportunities has it brought for your personal growth as an artist? Mm. Is it? I think it's a good question. <laughs> um, well, one thing is is that you can actually, or you are forced to, in a way step back a little bit to see everything from kind of the distance um you'd spend much more time with the family friends you haven't seen for ages um time to go around just thinking um listening to new music walking in the fields um just kind of refreshes your, your mind a little bit and also you have plenty of time to practice so i had this little project going on and really getting on top of uh, orchestral repertoire like uh, auditions um, and also improving my technique further um, which is um, well it's in, in the process of course <laughs> but uh, that has been very helpful because um, you usually don't get very much time uh, to practice like carefully mm. You always have to go for the next next concert or, or, or whatever you are doing. Mm, yeah, absolutely. And yeah, yeah. and I I guess um when you when you talk about the reflecting you've been doing, I suppose there are influences which are outside of music which will still yeah. help you with the music. Um yeah. whether it's literature or just personal growth. Um yeah. which which I think is really important that as mm. musicians 
we are also we're also people and and <laughs> yeah. think, thinkers and um <laughs> yeah you know, so all of this society. is not just uh yeah you're you're not always thinking that like when, when you're doing these things or reflecting that this is gonna make my playing so much better in in that moment but it's, it's when reflecting uh, about the whole year afterwards when you realize that uh, all these things combined I, I believe at least um has helped me in in the right word of as an artist you know, a creative yeah. um, person um saying something sure Absolutely. something new something new that that's such an interesting idea and um i suppose with with hey everyone it's only me after this little break Sam is going to be having a chat with Stephanie Childress, a leading young conductor who recently made her debut with the London Symphony Orchestra. Before we continue, I just want to say thank you so much to everybody who's listened to our first series of episodes of Rawcast. A particular thank you to Ali, Samuel, Marino and Laura who took the plunge to make their own episodes in this first series. And of course, a big thank you to my co-editor, Sammy Moskella. We'll be back very soon with more. So in the meantime, back to Sam. So thank you very much for having me. My name is Stephanie Childress. Um, I guess people from the music world might say that I'm a conductor and a violinist. Um, I like to think that there's a bit more to to me than that, or at least more to life than than just conducting or just playing the violin, but it is something that I'm very passionate about. Um, I am working currently mainly um, in opera, but then sort of tiptoeing back and forth between the symphonic repertoire and um, the opera stage. So really enjoying it. Wonderful. And um, how has um, the past year allowed you to um, return to music in a more reset way, perhaps? Hmm. Um, so firstly, as I said, it was kind of like a complete break. I mean, I, I had loads of scores around me. I had a pile of scores you know, next to my desk and I was like, right, this is the time. And then I didn't touch any of them. So, <laughs> you know, I, it wasn't, I didn't look at scores. I didn't really listen to any classical music at all. Um, funnily enough, I got really into bebop. Um, and sort of sort of bebop and also West Coast um, jazz, which is something that I think for a long time I found so alien to to me and to the way I thought about music, the way I thought about what music making meant. Um, I've never been an, impri- an improvisatory sort of musician. I've never tried it, um, and it's something that absolutely terrifies me. So then, just really diving into kind of. Charlie Parker records, West Montgomery. Um, I mean, Charles Mingus is a bit later, but still, you know, absolutely great records. I mean, was was amazing. Sonny Red, Billy Higgins, like all of these really great jazz artists. Um, and I think kind of dedicating myself to a part of music which I had never explored before was, I mean, not in an arti- not in an artificial way, just something that suddenly sparked my interest and that I thought I had to pursue. Um, for me was immensely rewarding and I feel it's given me a very different view of kind of the sort of western art tradition of 
art and specifically music is linear you know even when you think about music harmonically you know we have you know traditionally one five one and then you put that on a broader structure and then you end up with Wagner operas, but it's still that kind of that trajectory where it's a goal orientated um, way of making music. Whereas with jazz and I mean, also I was listening to a lot of Brazilian music, but that's mm-hmm. to do with sort of this idea of enjoying time in the present and being open to, you know, the spontaneity of improvisation and whatnot. So that was the first thing. I think the second thing that really helped me um, was reading. Um, I think I've always been a really avid reader from when I was very young. And I read because I'm half French. I read a lot of books in French and I read a lot of books in English, but I hadn't read properly in a very long time. And so basically I spent my days reading, sort of pouring through whatever I could find. Um, you know, that was just amazing sort of finding the focus that you need to read I think is also very difficult in the in the world we live in I mean we're constantly on our phones on our screens you know I'm I'm absolutely um (laughs) guilty of this as as the next person so trying to then you know refocus our attention into actually reading you know for two or three hours straight without your phone um without even looking at your phone for you know for a short break or whatever was really really helpful actually and and difficult it took time it really took time um and then I think the third thing that really helped me was actually I became sort of very engaged or much more engaged politically than I had ever before in my life and I mean I'm still I'm still relatively long young so it's not as though you know I've missed you know, missed voting or missed elections or whatnot, but still, I mean, it was it was a very important part of my time away from music, especially as I said, you know, we were looking at, you know, the pressures that were been put on our health service, social care service, etc. And I mean, it really does wake you up, at least for me, it really did. I feel as though once you have your eyes opened, it's very difficult to close them. Um, and I think it made me even more passionate about promoting, I'd say, yeah, you know, politics within the artistic environment and I think that it's something that's quite taboo actually you Mm. know a lot of the time we are taught to think that artists are in a way on the periphery of or on you know on the threshold of between society and something else something that's a bit more sort of um opaque and it's it's a shame because we have to as workers we have to know our rights we have to know how to engage with people who you know who hires or people who are you know giving us funding for projects and we have to know which um which political party is going to be beneficial for us or just things like that and I think it's a shame that the arts especially in music you know there's so much pressure on us to be perfect human beings and to practice, you know, four or five hours a day, you know, dingy little practice room. Um, and inevitably when you do that, you don't really have time for anything else. And you don't have time to kind of really partake in society as I think is our goals as human beings um, is to do. So I don't know, that's a lot, but it, that really helped me. <laughs> it, it is absolutely a lot. And and that's wonderful. And, and thank you for the, the, that. Um, insightful answer I think um, reflecting on um, how we're going to build back better is, is a sort of cliche which is, is very much sort of taken in the political sphere but to sort of take it outside of that and um, with this in mind how do you think that the performing arts can build back better especially when 
UK is a, quite a freelance uh, culture and um, financial and mental health of freelancers has been hugely impacted as a side effect of this health emergency. Um, what would be your thoughts on that? Hmm. It's a big question. I think what um, the pandemic and especially the last few weeks with funding cuts, etc., um, what all of these things have shown is that people don't really believe in art as a transformational vehicle, a vehicle for transformation anymore. And I think that's the first thing to really tackle is this kind of mission-oriented approach of trying to make people um, understand slash believe that the arts are actually really necessary. And actually, I've just... A quick plug, this amazing book I've been reading, mm. um, which talks precisely about this sort of mission-oriented approach by Maria, Mariana Mazzucato called A Moonshot Guide to Changing Capitalism. But she's an amazing economist, and I've been reading her work really avidly. Um, but she basically talks about trying to create goals and missions, she calls them, because it's basically she compares things like the moon landing to how we can solve um you know, big societal problems now, like, you know, the climate emergency, et cetera, et cetera. But it's really applicable to all fields for how we use these sort of massive goals and missions in order to try and catalyze as many um, as many sectors as possible, actually, and sort of interweave sectors into working together. And I think that's something that in classical music, you know, it's it's obviously very difficult to get the right sort of funding, et cetera. But I think if we really try, and if, you know, other sectors around us would really try to work together to um, to create this sense of urgency towards the arts. So not just maybe classical music, but, you know, dance, theatre. And I'm not just talking about, you know, um, multidisciplinary projects. I'm talking about, you know, when we think about funding, you know, how can we involve, um, you know, education at a sort of much more primary level, you know, instead of just doing only outreach programs. I mean, trying to integrate the arts from a very, very young age. And I think that's that's one thing that I think we really need to focus on because the best type of um, engagement I find is when people have been exposed to complicated, I mean, art can be complicated. When people have been exposed to complicated things from an early age, you see that with you know science, maths, and all those things. But I think art is also complicated. Art does take time to, you, ha- you need time to grapple with it. And unfortunately, you know, a lot of people don't have that time. They don't have that privilege. But at the same time, if we really encourage schools to at least have a bit more of an artistic program from a young age, um, you know, and giving that to children, I think that could be so beneficial. And it would actually really help, you know, um, later on, you know, we wouldn't have to do as many sort of outreach programs that that often actually take away time from professionals trying to, you know, work in orchestras and actually make a very meagre living in the first place. I mean, it's it's a tough thing to say, but I do think that, you know, tackling the problem at its root cause will be much more efficient um, in the long run than sort of trying to solve the problems later on in the um, in someone's life, for example, when they're a teenager or a young adult. I mean, I know for a fact, you know, having done a lot of outreach work, it is very difficult to to speak to people who have never been exposed to these things and who are at a later stage in their development. So I think really trying to nip it in the bud as 
as quickly as possible is is important. I think the second thing is really showing how specifically or particularly after the pandemic when we think of the lack of social um, interactions that we have I mean there was a great talk by Simon McBurney the actor and opera director who said that you know this pandemic has proven that we are social beings that people go to the theatre in order to you know firstly it's a kind of you assert your will as a human being, even as, as funny as that sounds, by deciding to go to the theatre. You say, I'm going to go to the theatre. I have control of my life. I paid for the ticket. I'm going. Mm. But then as you sit in the theatre, you're expected to absolutely relinquish all sense of control because this artistic thing is being put onto you, is being sort of, is washing over you. And that as a collective effort, when you think about all the people that used to crowd into theatres and crowd into... Um, concert hall venues is an amazing thing. We all choose to go somewhere in order to then relinquish control as a community. I think that's a very powerful thing. And particularly after the pandemic, when we, as I said, we've been so sort of shut off from each other. I think it's very important that that groups show to government or you know to whoever can really provide us with the, the adequate funding um, that this is the way to rebuild society it's not necessarily just about science and you know the science subjects and research it's really about how to make more empathetic human beings sympathetic you know all of those things and I think that really starts um with art and well that's absolutely um true and with the point about education you were making um and um then with theatre going it's it's a question of, I think we do have so much access on the internet in this age. Um, I mean, whereas opposed to the one which Stravinsky and Bartok were caught up in, this is not a sort of pre-internet pandemic. This is one in which we do technically have access um, and yet the online recorded forms have a kind of monopoly on that. Whereas I think with education and with um actual live arts as a society what that can give to us and what indeed what we can give to the performers as as also members of the public as also consumers of this um the live element is so important um which sort of leads me on to on to my next question is um you stepped in for um Susanna Melki in the London Symphony Orchestra I believe it was November last year um what was that experience like to be conducting an, a distanced orchestra? Um, it must have been so um, so exciting, but at the same time, I believe, was this your first time with the London Symphony Orchestra? And yes, they were not in the usual way. <laughs> yeah, it was. I mean, I'd, I'd, um, I'd worked sort of with them on the periphery. I was assisting Sir Simon Russell for a couple of weeks um, in September and October. So I'd sort of seen them, um, thankfully, you know, I'd been able to watch them in LSO St. Luke's working in a socially distanced way. Um, But I mean, yeah, when I got the call, that was, you know, one of those moments where I'm still kind of pinching myself. And when I think back to however long that was ago, um, yeah, it still doesn't feel real. I think for me, my first challenge was, you know, well, the first thought that sort of cropped into my head was, gosh, I'm going to be conducting the LSO. Um, but I wasn't, funny enough, I wasn't so nervous about them being socially distanced because actually I think the great um, the great strength of 
of LSO St. Luke's is its acoustic. Um, and you really, when you're in it and when you're actually, when you're close to the conductor or when you're on the podium, you don't feel as though it's so socially distanced, which is amazing because um, the strings are sort of basically around you and they, they kind of, you know, you can't see the co-principles because they're kind of behind you. But it was wonderful having the brass on these, um, on the sort of the first levels of the balconies, you know, around you, because you do kind of get that surround effect, which you don't get. For example, I was, I was up in Manchester, and I remember, you know, conducting an orchestra, and I, I could, couldn't see the first trumpet's face because they were all on one level, and they were all in front of me. Um, whereas if they were, if they're around you, it, you do kind of feel cocooned by the sound, and it's a much sort of happier um, way of making music in a socially distanced way. And I mean, you know, we were so lucky to to be able to play at all. And I think I'm so delighted that you know LSO, the LSO were able to utilize that amazing space. Um, so that was that was amazing. But as I said, the, for me, the main thing was just okay. I'm conducting the LSO. Let's just try try to do a, a good job. <laughs> yeah. And um, what are your thoughts on how when we? I mean, I'm not sure if that repertoire was um, pre-planned or if it was picked for that concert specifically. But in general, how pieces can take on different meanings in new contexts. And I'm thinking about um, there was a. Uh, interview with Sir Simon Rattle on Channel 4 um, last August where he had um, recalled um, the um, conversation with Sir Adrian Bolt um, about Vaughan Williams's Fifth Symphony which was originally written during wartime London and how that um, for both of them took on a new context and as sort of next in line if you will I'd be interested to find out your thoughts on how whether in operatic genres or orchestral um, orchestral works how does how do the circumstances affect your approach to the piece um, whether it's with a distance orchestra or just speaking to the times and perhaps playing to an audience who aren't there who are at home mm. that's an interesting question I think for me, it's firstly accepting that every performance, whether you feel the context is different or not, it, it, it will be in a different context and it will be different. Um, I think it's Deleuze who said that repetition is difference. And I think in art and in art and, and in the creative process specifically, that is absolutely true. Nothing will ever is ever the same. Um, so I think first accepting that, and then obviously there are some contextual things that can have a huge impact. On, on what that difference is, as you said, you know, with with the Fifth Symphony, that was, you know, because it was written in wartime and it, it took on very different connotations, I'm sure, for Sir Simon. Um, I guess for me, it's interesting, I, I'll, because I'm actually, so I'm working on a production at Glyndebourne right now called Il Turco in Italia. And this is an opera which is problematic in many ways, if you, you know, even think about the title, The Turk in Italy. Um, <laughs> It's a comic number, I think. Yes, absolutely. Comic, maybe back in the day, um, but it's obviously there are a lot of tricky things about it. Um, and staging it nowadays could be seen as very problematic, but it's it's a funny one. I mean, our director, Mariam Clément, was absolutely fantastic. She kind of, you know, not to put any spoilers out there, but she creates a new character um, a new sort of non-speaking role and manages to twist the story absolutely on its, turn the story up upside down so that 
it's it's presented as though it were being written in the moment, not in the moment, but just as your as the action is taking place, it's being written by someone, right. as if um, improvised in a sense. So absolutely, and I guess that's just a funny example of how even such a sort of problematic work can be, as I said, twisted and also kind of um, recreated in a new fashion. I think that. You know, in a film, and that's obviously because a lot of Rossini's subject matters are intensely problematic, especially for female characters, but for non-Italian characters in this particular context. But I think in terms of the pandemic, I mean, I think music making will take on a very different um, role, but I, I'm not sure for, for how long, you know, a lot of people, you know, just want to get back to anything resembling yeah. normality and when we get back to that maybe it'll feel as though the pandemic has never happened I'm not so sure I think in terms of of the arts particularly and arts organizations rather rather than musicians or artists within those organizations I think there will be a profound shift and it's something that we need to really be prepared for I think in terms of funding we need to be able to find the right kind of funding at the right time. I think for me, I find it sometimes very problematic to just give, um, to give grants to very specific organizations. I think every project has its sort of, you know, it's nascent, it's infant stages, you know, the middle period where you're rehearsing and then the concerts or whatever, you know, where you're, where you're putting it to the public or, or, you know, letting it, you know, loose into the world. And I think, there are different ways of of managing money in that, you know, to use that dirty word, um, managing money between those three stages. And I think it's very problematic just sort of getting grants and having short-term investment, essentially. Mm-hmm. I think with any, if you want longevity, you need a sort of a, um, a long-term financial approach. And I think, unfortunately, that's not something that um, the government in this country is geared towards specifically towards um, the arts, and I think that's something that we really have to think about. So I don't know if I've answered your question. No, this, all, but I think generally with music making, everything is always going to be different. But I think we need to take because you know we have such amazing orchestras and such amazing musicians in this country. I think we really need to take a long-term approach to make sure that you know we can repeat all of these amazing works of art and make sure that they're different every time. Yeah, well, I think the first stage is having it discussed, right? And um, I think also Music Matters on Radio 3, Tom Service, it's, it has been spoken about um, uh, without wanting to uh, sort of misquote anything, but it is certainly a, a problem which is right on the agenda. And I mean, uh, you, you're half French, and although most of your um, musical life has been in the UK, I'd just be interested, Do you? Ha- is there a f- kind of... Uh, perspective on how France um, is funding differently for example it's it's arts projects I mean I know they're very supportive of cinema much more prone to give state subsidies um, or perhaps it's it's the case that in the UK I, I think it's um, uh, I mean I, I, I'm resistant to the sort of the, the the mindset of it's got to be commercially minded but I'm sure that oh, the, I am the well. public, I'm very resistant yeah right <laughs> I'm sure the, the the public will justify with, without, you know, if, if, if enough people want to do it, then there'll be a way of making it feasible. Um, but 
um, sometimes, as you were saying, that the the genesis of a project does need some support. And actually, the arts give so much more than the monetary value, right? It's it's the whole absolutely. holistic health benefits. Um, the spillovers are absolutely massive. I think, interestingly enough, it remind your question reminded me of my experience in the States, which is a um, donor-based system. And I remember, I'm sorry, I was lucky enough to go to St. Louis in um, March and April, so for about a month, because I'm their assistant um, conductor. And I mean, it's, it's amazing how happy musicians can just, you know, it just transforms the whole your whole practical way of making music and even like you know mentally going into rehearsals every day I was just so uplifted because they're paid well um also living costs in St Louis are, are quite low which is which is helpful for them but they they're just happy people because they can afford to feed their families they can afford to have families they can afford to live you know five minutes from the concert hall and you know where they rehearse I mean it's a very it, it was really baffling for me as a as an English musician who knows how the freelance world works here and how difficult it is for a lot of, you know, even top orchestral musicians, you know, a lot of them don't live in London. Mm. I have to commute long distances to into London for rehearsals and stuff. So, I mean, that, I think the donor-based system is, is a tricky one because then you are obviously very, um, you know, you're tied to this person who is giving you money and you feel obligated and, and you're constantly trying to juggle this sort of very bizarre relationship where you're trying to, you know, um, accept them into the, or you're trying to invite them into the folds of the orchestra for basically one purpose only, which is getting their money. And that's something that unfortunately I'm, I feel very uncomfortable um, mm. with, but it seems to work. So mm. we have to find a, a happy medium, I think, between the two or find a completely different alternative. I don't know. I'm not an economist. If there are mm. any economists around that would like to solve this conundrum for the musical community in the UK, then please reach out. Um, but it's, it's, it's a difficult one. And I think once we actually change the way that we think about arts, not rather, not how can we fund this? Because that's the problem, really. We're always trying to look for the money, but maybe taking, as I said, you know, at the start, a more mission approached a more mission approach way of, you know, how do we get arts back into education firstly? Mm. You know, how do we make sure that people have access to online resources and are mm. actually taught about art and using these online resources? I think that's the, the most amazing thing, what you mentioned about, you know, we can all access these things on by YouTube or, you know, different um, streaming platforms, but actually the access is sometimes not the most important thing. It's about being taught about what you're watching because as yes. I said art can be a very complicated thing to engage in and that's not an elitist thing to say I think that's just the, the fact we make art because it takes a lot from you it gives a lot back as you were saying and you know if we have teachers in place to help young people navigate through these things I think mm. you know it can it can really generate a world of possibilities. Mm. Well, th that's so interesting what you were saying um, about uh, in St. Louis, the orchestra, as a conductor working with these musicians, you uh, had the impression that um, because they were better paid and because there was more of that sort of economic affirmation, more of that security, that they were able to, to give back more. And UK orchestras are 
um, notoriously good at sight reading because of the relatively little rehearsal time. Is that something which is true? Yeah, 100%. I mean, it's yeah. what you put in front of, you can, yeah, you can put anything in front of, a, of an English orchestra, I think, and they will, they will just sort it out within that three hour re- rehearsal time. Yeah. I mean, it's absolutely amazing. I think it's only when you start then traveling from, I've worked a tiny bit in France and I said, I'm just working in America. Um, you know, I just started working in America, but I mean, it's, you just realize how lucky we are, but also you just wonder how do they do it? You know, obviously it comes from a long tradition, but how are they still doing it? And I think that's what we should really, in a way, be worried about is that, you know, if if they get, um, if wages go down, I mean, especially now with Brexit, a lot of musicians don't really want to work in the UK anymore. I mean, I don't know, you know, about you or people that you've you've spoken to, but I know a lot of orchestral musicians who are looking for jobs elsewhere, who are looking for jobs that you know, will allow them to travel in Europe freely. So I think this is one thing we really, it's a wonderful thing that we have, but how long we'll have it for, I think is is left to be seen. Yeah, and we'll have to watch out for that. Um, you've recently won second prize in La Maestra um, conducting competition in Paris. Congratulations for which. And um, how, how was that to, um, again, like with the LSO, return in front of an orchestra? I mean, it was, firstly, it was amazing because I'd never conducted a French orchestra. So that was a a really important first and something that I'd been wanting to do for a long time. I think, um, you know, even though I was born in London, I went to, I went to a French school and I think culturally, um, you know, I grew up in a very French environment. So that was really lovely, just getting to conduct a French orchestra. Um, Secondly, I mean, I'm amazed the competition happened at all because, I mean, we were just coming out of this sort of bizarre but quite um, calm summer, I would say, in terms of, of COVID rates. And then suddenly in September, things started to heat up again with you know numbers going up. And I remember thinking, you know, what um, should I really be putting myself in that situation? You know, going taking the Eurostar and going over to Paris. But I'm really glad I did because I met some wonderful conductors, made some really really good friends. Um, and got to work with with a really um, a gen- very generous orchestra. I mean, they're called the London, the, not the London, the Paris Mozart Orchestre, and they were created by the lady who also created the competition, Claire Gibault, and uh, who, fantastic conductor herself. And I mean, the amount of yeah generosity, but the warmth that we got from the orchestra was was amazing. Especially when you think about it, that it was a, a competition you know, a competitive context, you know, and they were seeing, you know, 10, 12 of us every day. And every time they were still able to, to give a lot of themselves as musicians. That was really amazing. Um, Yeah, I had a wonderful time. I think it was also important for me to kind of, to be a part of this competition because it was, you know, only an only female competition. I think that was something that worried me for a long time before um, before going. But I remember speaking to Claire Gibault and she said, you know, Stephanie, the we've put this competition, we've created this competition so that it doesn't need to exist in 10 or even, you know, five years time if, it, if we can. Um, it's just there to try and redress the balance in a sort of turbocharged way. And then when its work has been done, then, you know, we won't need it anymore. And I thought that was 
something that really um that I really appreciated and it made me you know much happier going and just knowing that I was going to be a part of this first edition mm. and that will now no doubt be a sort of bullet point on your list of how to build back the performing arts better um amongst other things we've discussed um and you were talking about how in um sort of last year you were um stepping out away from classical music a bit because um it wasn't something which was you felt necessitated um as the performing arts do restart um what works have you been reconnecting with with a view to actually performing them and working with them with an orchestra or an, or an opera company um and how, how has it been like and also what are your hopes going forward um and your next sort of plans gosh um <laughs> well i think i'm happy to say that you know my connection to music now is is stronger than ever and so and there are a couple of works actually that that really managed to to help me reconnect i think um a big part of trying to sort of patch up my relationship to classical music was was opera um opera is what first got me into conducting and I think it's kind of it's quite nice that in a way it was able to get me back into conducting um after this you know the weird times um of the first lockdown so I mean works like I mean I don't have I don't have plans to conduct them um in the near future but you know works like Evgeny Onyegin um I'm looking around to see what other schools I have around no, it's great I, I find that, that you know there are works which oh I know I want to play that one day I'm just not just not sure when I'm going yeah. into my third year and I'm sort of thinking what do I want to prioritize what really is helpful for me now what can I even try and give something to um, mm-hmm. as well as it giving something to me so I really like the idea that I think many of us we kind of we know we want to work on this piece and this piece it's a question of, of when yeah what can I ask you what those pieces are as a violinist well the Tubert Fantasia in, in oh that's that's difficult <laughs> <laughs> it is yeah for example for example oh my god yeah so I mean it's this idea of I know it will kind of be a lifelong journey or or even some of the string quartet repertoire. I've recently um, been reconnecting with that and I find it much more enjoyable to even listen to when I know, oh, I'm, I'm expecting to play this. You know, I've mm-hmm. got to not only listen to this as an audience member, but as someone who will be kind of contributing a quarter towards this, um, which is wonderful. So mm-hmm. um, are there any kind of equivalence for, for you yeah I mean actually funnily enough chamber music is one that um I completely forgot about over lockdown and then I mm. I listened to I mean for me Schubert is just like for me his chamber music has you know he has no rival no equal mm. um and I mean the the double um well the string quintet two yeah. cellos is I think one of the most amazing works of art periods I think you know, things like Death and the Maiden but also you know people might think this is a bit of a cheesier option but um but you know Tchaikovsky's Souvenir de Florence which just gets oh. me every yeah. time I yeah. absolutely adore it and it's so think, summery and so schmaltzy and yeah it is. 
It's wonderful. And I mean, I think that's the thing, you know, as conductors, sometimes we, our heads are sort of too far buried into our orchestral, you know, symphonic scores. And I think it's just amazing to to get out of that and to realise that, you know, there's so much more to music making than, than an orchestra of, you know, 30 or 40, you know, and sometimes some of the most meaningful music making can happen on a, you know, this sort of chamber music um, level. So I'd say, yeah, opera and chamber music were definitely lifesavers. Mm. Yeah, definitely. I mean, just comparing kind of orchestral music to chamber music um, uh, makes me think of a, a question which, um, because of social distancing, at least in the short term, um, some orchestras have had to be reduced, for example, maybe doing without, for example, a, a double bass or some of the brass section. Um, is that something, a problem which you've encountered and um, uh, how, how do you work through it? Um, well, it's certainly a problem I've encountered because I've not been able to do a lot of the repertoire that, um, that I've wanted to do. But at the same time, I mean, it's it's led to a, an astonishing amount of um, innovative programming, which I've absolutely adored. I mean, I'm all for, you know, tearing up the rule book when it comes to programming, you know, not just having an overture, a concerto and then a symphony. I mean, it's like it, the, the repertoire is so much bigger than that. And actually seeing... Um, you know, major orchestras actually really have to dig, you know, deep and try and find something that works for the forces that they have and have been absolutely amazing. I mean, one one word I can think of, I mean, maybe it was already well known before, but I mean, I saw it, I think, on three programmes in, in two months was the um, Bacevich um, String concert, string orchestra concerto or something. She's a Polish composer. I mean, it's a fantastic work. Mm. She was um, a wonderful violinist. Mm. That, and and you can I mean, you can tell from the string writing, um, which is quite hard, but you know, but lovely. And you know, I mean, I did some Ruth Crawford Seeger, which I absolutely adored. And you know, I'm hoping to see a bit more of Martinu's um, chamber music. There was some, I think the an orchestra up in Scotland, I don't remember which one it was, did um, La Revue de Cuisine, which is just a really fantastic little chamber chamber work. Um, so I think, you know, it's been difficult, but at the same time, it's just wonderful seeing all these works that don't usually get performed, um, you know, coming out of the woodwork, so to speak. Mm. Um, I think it's also been an amazing time, and I hope we get to see more of this. Um, it's been an amazing time for arrangers, um, people who have had to range, I mean, not just big Mahler symphonies, but, you know, just other symphonic works that have had to make it, you know, make those things work for smaller bands and stuff. I think that could be a really interesting um, avenue to pursue in the future. I'm not saying that every big orchestral work should be reduced because it'd be lovely to have, you know, the work performed in its integral kind of um, form. But at the yeah. same time, you know, why not? You know? Mm. Yeah. So it's a question of, finding a way through and adapting at the same time, of course, looking forward to when you can have full forces and as the composer originally intended, I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you and um, so um, inspiring and insightful, not just for me, I'm sure other listeners as well, um, uh, whether or not they're um, musically trained or musical audiences. Um, it's been absolutely wonderful. Uh, and a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Samuel. Thanks. So to wrap up the podcast, albeit very briefly, I couldn't think of anyone better than Zachary Davies, who's in my year. Uh, and last summer, 
he started the Euterpian podcast after the name for the Greek muse for music. And already you've had nine um, insightful, fascinating episodes with a range of guests. And um, I drew upon Zach's uh, advice when embarking upon this. Um, so th thank you for coming on, Zach. Thank you for asking me. It's a pleasure. Um, and, you know, even if people don't listen this far, um, I mean, the duration is approaching Mahler's second symphony. Um, <laughs> I'm sort of satisfied because I've sort of encapsulated um, quite literally um, people at the start of their careers and during this quite unique moment. Um, it's been a difficult and tough time for so many, but hopefully this will strike an optimistic note um, about renewal. How has it been for you starting and continuing a already very successful podcast over the past year? That's a Great point and a great question. The podcast, well, it, it's been fascinating, a fascinating experience for me because I started out with a vision, uh, probably catalyzed by the totally bizarre experience of lockdown. Uh, namely, um, the I had this idea to create a podcast. And so I thought, what do I want to do with it? What is my ethos? And ultimately, I just wanted to have undiluted uh, conversations that didn't require any kind of uh, sensationalizing. Uh, and yeah, starting off by talking to this friends and students, and then suddenly talking to a load of professionals and people in arts administration, it, it's been a great experience. And not only fun but also educational how have you found it i mean well it's been a journey i've um learned so much and um i think we do um find the silver linings i don't think that they're inherent um after the cloud of the past year um and i think going forward um we were saying earlier on um and i said to a couple of the interviewees there is a real appetite for these conversations which have perhaps been missing of us we've been away from our departments absolutely there's a there's a there's a hunger for them to learn to to listen and to hear you know when i was thinking about how i would personally do the podcast I, in, that we had i had a few different options you know either i just sort of do a a podcast by myself and I thought you know what no I, I want people who are more interesting than myself to talk and for me and my listeners to be included in this intimate bubble of conversation and yeah I, I think that anyone and you know I'm, I'm not unique in that of course I think that's the as I said the whole enterprise of podcasting mm. and I think it's a wonderful thing and particularly pertinent at the moment. Well, yeah, thank you so much for joining me at the end of this. It's been really nice to wrap up with you because you did give me uh, some of the um, almost license to um, <laughs> go about how you've already been doing, as I say, nine great uh, episodes of The Euterpian, which people can find.
Well, thank you for, for having me on. It's a pleasure. And I'm looking forward to seeing how this podcasting endeavor of your own uh, carries on and, and grows. Well, thanks. I, mean, I think it will be just this one episode, but already I'm thinking ahead. I've already got a couple of interesting people lined up for a next episode, whenever that may be. Yes. Never say never. Never say never. <laughs>